0: Welcome to a new episode of Somewhat Damaged. I'm your host, Greg Alperin, and with me, as always, John B. This week, joining us, Tom Cotter, fellow New Englander and superstar from America's Got Talent. Sit back, relax, buckle up.
1: Hey, John. Hey, guys. How are you? What's up? John, how you doing? What's up, Tom? Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Good to be seen. Thanks for having me. Of course, of
2: course, of course.
1: What's going on, guys? Sorry, I was on a call with
2: Donnie, and just ran a little late. Donnie can be a little long-winded, but had to had to um, appease that master first before I came on to my other obligations here. But, I,
1: I got nowhere else to be, so you didn't hold me up. I'm good. I'm home. <laughs> All right, bet, 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 bet. The last 22 months. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Anyway, so thanks for hanging with us, man. Sure how uh
1: how you 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 and John know each other of course i imagine well just because we bump into each other at uh you know at uh stand up and stuff right. so you yeah. ever see you ever see John do his his tight five i don't think i have i don't think i've had the
0: pleasure <laughs> oh god i don't have a tight five the tight five that i have
2: tom is when donny throws me on stage and says hey um you know talk to the audience about x y and z and i got to go on for like three to four minutes before I bring up some unsuspecting comedian that is going on pretty much cold to a room. So (laughs) it's not the tightest five ever. I'll leave that to you guys
1: we've um, all been, but there. I was been actually,
2: there a million times so yeah i was thinking about it like tom do you remember the time that you were the most intimidated to go up on stage
1: america's got talent is very intimidating because our i think our biggest number was like 19 million viewers so and even our reruns we had a rerun which meant it was the live show re-aired two days later and that got 11 million so that's a lot of eyeballs and not only is it a lot of eyeballs, but it's eyeballs that, that I knew growing up, that I went to Boy Scouts with, that I'm related to, that are my children. So, you know, so I, I that was very intimidating. And I lost a lot of weight that summer just because of stress. And I had acne and diarrhea. So that'll tell you the stress level of that. Jesus Christ. Did you but, up? but, you know, the first time you go on stage when you're an open micer, that's intimidating as hell too. So,
0: yeah. When you did AGT, you did it. There was a few different, like you were on a couple different years, right? With I with was a contestant
1: sets. on season seven. Right. And then I came back as a returning performer on season eight, which meant they had to pay me, which they right. never did in season seven. And then I came back uh, another season to do the um, Snapple viewers show, just another right. stupid way to monetize. And then I, I went back for champions where Simon hated me.
0: Right. But so there were different sets of judges <laughs> each time, not each time, but. In some of the different shows. There were different sets, right? Like Stern was one time, Simon yeah. was another time. Were there were either of those sets more intimidating than the other?
1: You know, I really got lucky. My my season was Sharon Osborne, who's the right. wife of the Prince of Darkness, Howie True. Mandel, who's a comic, and Howard Stern, who's basically a comic. So right. that was a great judges panel for comedians. That year, when I went back to uh, do it the next year, Sharon had been replaced by two women yep. by Mel B and Heidi, Cl- Heidi uh, Klum. Yep. And so that was just intimidating because I didn't know what to expect from them, but they were great. They were wonderful. And then in champions, the only difference was uh, Stern was gone and Simon was there right. and yep. Simon Was a dick. He gave me an X. He gave Dan Natterman an X. And you know, this was during Champions when they were not supposed to give X's away. He was just an ass because he didn't like Howard Stern and the comics that Howard Stern liked. So all of us that were under the Howard Stern banner all got, you know, none of us made it in Champions to the end, which was unfortunate.
0: Were you a were you a Stern guy growing up? Since.
1: you know, I knew all my friends, my fraternity brothers were loyal stern guys, and I uh, knew of it, but I was too cheap to buy the, the, you know, Sirius at the time, her to, to really invest in it. And then once I was on the show, I became a huge fan because he right. could not have been nicer to me and the other comics. He also wanted a rock band to win. And yeah. I liked, I honestly... Liked the way he judged. I thought he was a better judge, and I've said this before. I love Howie, but I think Howard was better than Howie. Howie liked some zany acts that were never going to win, sure, but he would right. advance them. Stern was like, Why are you taking up a space that a real entertainer could take with this act that's never going to, you know, the whole idea is you're supposed to be able to work in Vegas. Yeah, this guy right. could never work in Vegas, or this girl. So
2: so, I mean, listen, Tom, I mean, obviously uh, with the pandemic and in the last couple of years, you know, I, I hear the rumming, uh, you know, people talking about it in the bar area that TV doesn't matter anymore. And that it it's not like getting a late night set, getting on America's Got Talent doesn't make you a better comedian. What are your thoughts on people that kind of say that idea and that it's all about your monetizing your brand and being, you know, internet famous, as opposed to, you know, getting that handshake from Fallon.
1: It's, it really is, it's morphing. When I started, you know, you guys were in in diapers, you know, so uh, I started a long time ago. And when I started, you had to have a tape, literally a VHS tape. And it was always send me a tape, send me a tape. They still use the term, no one sends a tape anymore. It's all click now. And, you know, back then there weren't websites. You know, you you really, if you wanted to market yourself, you did it by snail mail. You sent out mailers. And now it's, I I don't, I understand that it's evolving, that there's evolution in place, but it kills me coming out of Boston, which is where I started, that there are some really great old comics in Boston that I think, and I'm a homer, I get it, but uh, because I knew them growing up, but I think they're 10 times funnier than some of these social media uh, guys. And so... You know, guys that I started with just recently got uh, you know color headshots. They had black and white headshots. They uh, they certainly didn't have any any uh, presence on social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. They they don't you know they're slowly being pushed in that direction because they have to be. It's a necessary evil now, but it doesn't equate to really being funny. And there are guys that are that put a lot of asses in seats that are social media darlings. But then you go to see their show and you're woefully disappointed. You know, they, they've they shot their load after 10 minutes and they've got 50 minutes of dead air, whereas one of these old veterans that I think are spectacular just never played the social media game will have you laughing from the moment you take your seat to the moment you give a standing ovation at the end and that whole hour in between. So it's just a weird time right now. And we're all delving into the social media realm because we have to. Again, it's a necessary evil. but. I unfortunately, I think that defines people now, and it shouldn't.
0: First, thanks for the uh, the compliment on thinking that uh, when you started, I was in diapers. That that's not accurate.
1: It's an image I like to have <laughs> in my head. You wearing a pair of Depends? Oh, if you odd. go to my if you go to
0: my social media, you'll find some of that for sure.
1: I hope yeah. it's scratch and sniff. <laughs> Greg what,
2: still what? has MySpace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have my hey, that's email. how Dane Cook made it. I can't Dane throw go. stones. My email is ao. Who? Who?
1: Dane, Dane Cook. Who? Exactly.
0: <laughs> Tom, what years were you in Boston? When did you start? What years would you start in Boston?
1: I, well, I started in Rhode Island, actually, right. Providence, Rhode Island. There was yep. one comedy club. It was, yep. uh, you know, not much. And that was in 87, 88 it was the first time I went on stage. Then I went and buried my head in the sand because it went horribly wrong. And then I, you know, got the passion again or the stupidity and then i said i'm gonna move to boston because when you're in rhode island you either move an hour north to boston or three hours south to new york so i moved north to boston for six years and really cut my teeth up there you know got got into the game and then i moved to new york and i'm glad i did it that way i uh you know hindsight's 2020 sometimes people say well you should have gone right to new york you ended up there anyway but those years i had in boston were unbelievably valuable um, for me comedically
0: Right. Yeah. I, I went to college in Boston around that time. Where? Northeastern.
1: Wow. Do you know how many comics have gone to college in, you know, just out of BU, Elon Gold, Greg Fitzsimmons, Jeff yeah. Ross, uh, Johnny Lampert out of Emerson. There's a thousand. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. The, sure. and that's why another reason why Boston was so great was because it's all colleges. So you had so many people like Wendy Liebman started there because she went to college there. Uh, John, uh, David Cross started there because he went to college there. So many others. Bob Goldthwait started there because he went to college there. And so that's, you know, that helps us you kind of, you know, have that lineage of, of great comics that have come out of Boston. Did you? It's,
2: it's it's weird, though. You know, we talk about Boston a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I only see, because obviously I, we were hearing all the documentaries. The Patrice Doc just came out and it was like everybody started up in Boston. You know, you said this whole kind of litany of people. But... It seems like there's only two cities now and that's los angeles and new york have you been able to go back up to boston and kind of see if there's that same semblance because from my experiences going up to boston whether it be for a festival you know there's a there's a women in comedy festival that's very good up there um but there's not really a scene scene up there anymore
1: uh it, it went away yeah it kind Did of you, died I, it was the rock and roll of the late 80s and when i got in A lot of the comics would say, the headliners would say, I feel bad for you. There's only three open mics this week. When I started, there was an open mic every week, every night. And I was happy with three. I thought three was great because now they don't have open mics. They have bringer shows where you got to harass 10 of your friends or family to go. So it's much harder now than it was when I started. And they're saying that it's much easier for them than when I started. So it was this long slow trajectory down and then eventually people fled like rats off a burning ship and they all went to LA and New York because the Boston scene was crumbling. Um, it wasn't what it was in the late eighties. It slowly had this. And so to your question, I, there is a scene up there. I used to go up all the time and I knew everybody up there. And so you yeah. no matter what club you went to, you'd have drinks with everybody and hang out and, hey, good to see you, I haven't seen you. So it's kind I of like a little me. mini
2: New York up there, wasn't it, back in the day? Like,
1: you know, like you could run to the cellar and oh, yeah. see
2: all your friends over there. You can run to the strip and see that. So they had that there, which is baffling to me because like every time like I speak to new comics, they're like, yeah, like we're, we're driving an hour, you know, west out of here to do one open mic. And then for and I was like, and are you hitting any other ones? Like, nope, that's it
1: for the week. Yeah, like,
2: holy
1: shit. Yeah, that's like, not oh, wow. you need stage time, and there really isn't, you know, there for these younger comics that are starting now. I I tip my cap to them. I that would have been a deal breaker for me if I yeah. didn't have the stage time and I had to harass people to come see me. I would have been selling insurance, I think. So I'm glad that I had that. You know, three three was enough for me. And and some nights you'd bang out two or three in a night, and it really was great. I remember as an opener working at the Kowloon, which is a Chinese restaurant, and they had two rooms, and they staggered the shows to start one at 7, the next one at 8, then back in the other room at 9, then the other room at 10, and by the end, you had no idea if you had told that joke two sets ago, three sets ago, but you walked out with a wad of cash. As an opener, you know, I was only making 100 a show or something, but I'd walk out with 600 bucks at the end of the night, and that was nirvana to me. Yeah. Uh, But those days, then it went down to five shows, then to four, then to three, and now it's down to one. So it really, and I said this, I was just in Nantucket this past weekend, and we were talking uh, with some of the older comics. It Really, it's because, uh, first of all, it was oversaturated on television. Uh, Arts and Entertainment Network, the A&E Network, had like five stand-up comedy shows just on that one network. Now you add in MTV had Ha, and Comedy Central had Comedy Central. It was the Comedy Channel at the time. And then you know, there's so much uh, televised stand-up comedy that people just said, screw it, I'm not going out to a club when I can see it at home. And then karaoke also killed Boston because every bar in Boston, and all Boston is is colleges, bars, and hospitals, every bar had a comedy night. And then when karaoke came along, they're like, ah, screw the comics. They're going to show up either jacked up on cocaine or late. The karaoke machine's going to be on time. And so they went with karaoke, and Uh, that slowly weaned out the stage time and at the end it was just kind of crumbling and so a lot of us fled to LA and I fled to New York and that's where we all ended up
0: where where did did you mainly work Nick's comedy stop was that like
1: there were you know when I was up there it was Catch a Rising Star was in Cambridge right Uh, Nick's and the comedy and the comedy connection were on the same block the original comedy connection one block like 50 yards apart. So that was too easy. Uh, and then the the next comedy set connection moved to Faniel Hall. That was the huge big A room. Yeah. And then there were a lot of satellite rooms. We had so many rooms out in the burbs that as a opener, I could, you know, I could make a living doing it. It wasn't a, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't tons of money, but I didn't have a day job. I was still, I was young and single and um I was living in a rent controlled apartment, and I was able to bang out enough work. If you didn't piss off the headliners, they always wanted you to drive them. So uh, it was great.
0: That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I used to go to Knicks all the time. Like we, I mean, probably at least twice a month we would, we would go to Knicks and then they opened up that other nightclub little thing around the corner and you were able to like go do a bunch of different things at one time. I worked on Lansdowne street for years.
1: Yeah. Oh wow. Then you were right in the thick of it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, as all that was developing out it started with a couple then it blew up to the whole street and then around the corner so i i saw the whole night scene from a different aspect you know like the nightclub scene which i fucking hated like i it well didn't stand it and i first that
1: also beat up the comedy yeah,
0: uh totally. clubs because once once that expansion happened and it happened really fast like all those nightclubs kind of blew up on lansdowne and around the corner and around family park and then finally when they closed down narcissus which was my first job in college i worked the door at narcissus
1: think about that you know who was narcissus he was the guy who was in love with himself they named a club after him oh i mean that tells you everything you need to know right there it was full of douchebags
0: you couldn't it got progressively more douchebaggy when you would that place was the the height of douchebaggery and then you'd go to some celebration which was in the alley remember yeah we even went further down the alley you would go to
1: the club called lipstick <laughs> Which... that sounds like a titty bar to be honest with you i don't know what that was <laughs> well, i was never there the whole thing's out there like a giant titty bar collective anyway to your earlier point about nicks though that's one of that that is emblematic of what happened in boston nicks uh was doing okay and the numbers started going down and they decided to start papering the room so they just gave everyone right. free tickets but well, yeah. when you come to a comedy club if you haven't paid to get in generally you're not as invested in the show. You're like, oh, I got free tickets, I'll show up. Uh, but if you paid for your ticket, you're much more invested in the show, you're going to be a better audience member. So those numbers came down, and then the, the owners of nicks saw what was happening at these other clubs, and Knicks became the Euro Club, because as you know, it's all colleges. Well, it's tons of colleges that are filled with really, really rich people. Yep. Like, not... American rich people, like literally princesses and princes and card, dukes and duchesses. The and, cards that
0: kids would show up to at the nightclubs were ridiculous.
1: And so if you're Nick's Comedy Stop you know that they, they were like we want the comedy show o- over early cuz we want these rich people in here cuz they were all getting bottle service and they were tipping the waitresses a thousand bucks and they were double parking out front cuz they all had diplomatic plates they didn't give a shit if they got towed and you know it was just a a avalanche of money and everybody was winning you know so yeah. uh nicks was like well comedy's now on the back burner and that was emblematic of what was happening everywhere else and we were like well you know how can we win this fight we can't let's move to new york where there's 18 comedy clubs right. and everyone gets along the problem with la at the time was mitzi owned the store and bud friedman owned the improv and jamie owned the factory and they hated each other so great comics were moving out to la and if you worked for jamie you couldn't work for mitzi and if you worked for mitzi you weren't allowed to work for bud so they were these little pawns in this chess game whereas in new york it wasn't uncommon for danger fields to call the strip and say hey you're on the east side we're on the east side we need a comic send us someone and we did all the time we jump in a cab and go down and do that and the same was true for the comics the clubs on the west side and downtown and everyone got along so
2: i think they still get along um what i kind of want to uh, mention though is that how comedy kind of moved out of the nightclub night scene in boston and went into academia because Emerson, a lot of my interns, they are taking, uh, they're getting a major in comedy. Yeah, specifically there. I think that's and great. It's it's a, to to me, I, I I it's very interesting because, but what, what's well, and and the smart ones will do is that they'll be like, listen, this tells us kind of the the cognizance of uh, like uh, you know like. The easier. Uh, the, the calisthenics of, of comedy and how to write and things of that nature. What it doesn't show you is how to make money after it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And monetize all of it. So that's why they come to our door. How do you feel like there are a lot of comedians out there and um, I don't even want to say a lot. I, I'll, I'll take that that's in the back. But there's comedians that are currently right now in our open mic scene here in New York, here in Los Angeles that I'm seeing that went to school for comedy and i'm not talking about just one class uh, you know that is at the cellar on a sunday i mean they're they literally went to college for it and they're upset that their jokes aren't hitting how do you how do you talk to somebody who who, who has this hubris that because they have some you know piece of paper on the wall that they're funny <laughs> how, how do you tell <laughs>
1: Well, I think the hey. audience determines that, you know, it's it's amazing. If you watch Chris Rock or Seinfeld pop in to do a guest set at a club, they know that they have five minutes of adoration from the audience just because of what they've already accomplished in their career and their name recognition and everything. So when they come in, of course, everyone, the blue, they blow the roof off the place, the first five minutes. But you watch as they're doing new material, that love comes down. The audience... You know, will only give you so much. And Seinfeld talked about it in his uh, documentary, comedian. Um, and I think that, that it's supply, it's kind of supply and demand. If you're not supplying a lot of funny stuff, the audience is not going to give you the response you want. So they can have any degree they want from any institution. It's it's it means nothing. It's a worthless piece of paper. It's what you can do on stage, and it's what you bring to the audience. That's what. Again, with credits, some guys go up there and make the host read a litany, a paragraph full of credits, and other comics go up with one credit, you know, uh, and that's it. And the audience doesn't care about the credits. That gives you 10 seconds of credibility to them. After that, it's what you're doing on the stage. So your degree, your credits, it all means nothing. It's what you're bringing on the stage. So, and the other thing I find ironic about this, and I might be uh, a little more to the right than some comics, but i think the problem with comedy right now is the um the pendulum has swung so far to the politically correct and woke part of of stand-up and when i started a long long time ago we had to worry about born again christians i had to write an apology letter to a christian lady because i made a joke about the pope once and i had to literally pen a letter to her because the club owner said you got to do this i'm going to get in trouble so i did I worried about the hardcore religious people now i'm worried about the hardcore lib- liberal kids who are coming out of these schools because they're not allowed to you're not allowed to hurt anyone's feelings now and so the the whole uh, you know i'm triggered you can't talk about that and comedy is now hate speech and that's what i my kids are in college right now and i'm just terrified they tell me things that you know I just think it's the death of comedy if if this keeps going with everyone getting offended all the time. Do yeah.
2: you think? I mean, you said you. I mean, uh, listen. I am. Uh, I, I could care. I, I could care what anybody says on our stage. You know what I mean? Um, there are many times that I have said, like I've and, and I've simple. Somebody like, let's say, somebody that you know, Aaron Burke, Right? I love Aaron. I am friends with his family. I've I eaten at love his that house. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. But has there been moments where I'll be like, "Oh, you shouldn't say that on stage." But is that gonna make me hate him less? You know what I mean? No, it's not. And the reason, actually, and and I won't say that I, I I censored him, but he used the word in a park show when we were doing shows out in the park, and I was like, "Well, that's oh, different. Dude, that's not be, in a
1: comedy yeah. club." <laughs> <You're>
2: right. <laughs> you got to be careful. But um, what do you? I mean, you you say that the you, you said the death of comedy. Do you think that there is that we're ramping up? to it?
1: No, I mean, no, that's you, me being over dramatic, but I okay. I really am concerned about where it is now. When Seinfeld wrote that op-ed to the New York Times a few years ago saying he'll never work at a college again, we were all like, "I get it, but you don't have to work at a college. You go home and sleep on a mountain of cash. We have to work at colleges. And if right. he's too dirty for you, the rest of us are doomed cuz he's squeaky clean. And he's just sick of people showing up with a chip on their shoulder waiting for you to utter that one syllable that's going to send them into a tizzy and then they go on social media and eviscerate you and i i, I just have trouble with that the knock wood, it hasn't happened to me yet i'm probably jinxing myself but i have friends in comedy who've been uh you know on kind of woke hit lists you know where people yeah. say uh please boycott this guy because he said this or this woman sure. said this and i just think there's no room for that in comedy comedy will always be around it's a it's a great uh, uniquely American art form, I believe, and it'll always be around. It's just unfortunately our hands are a little bit tied right now. I think.
0: Right. Do you you take that into consideration when you're writing new material?
1: I think you have to. I think you know. I just uh, I, this past weekend I was in Nantucket and Don Gavin and I. I don't know if you know Don. He's a great guy. We filmed two little specials, and you know we had all these writers meetings and everything. And you you the whole time you're wondering. Well, can that play now? And I shouldn't have to worry about that. Uh, You know, is this going to be okay? Now, if you're doing an outdoor show, to John's point, you know, Ehrenberg may have wanted to put the brakes on because there are civilians walking by with babies and strollers. That's not what they signed up for. But if you come to a comedy club, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. You know what you're coming into. And if you're going to be offended, then either leave or just suck it up because everyone else is having fun, you know? Right
2: this cancellation of comedians because of what they've said and done. It's funny uh, that we talk about how Jerry kind of stood up and said, I'll never do a college again because, uh, you know, like Jerry should just be canceled for the B movie. I mean, ultimately (laughs) that's what he should be canceled for. Uh, A fair point. Fair point. I mean, listen, me and Jerry have our beef, but I mean, if I was going to cancel him for something, it was definitely – that 1750 that I fucking spent at the AMC on step 67. Or the movie.
1: fact that he was engaged in statutory rape years and years ago. Oh, you went there. I didn't mean to go there. My point is that you know if he's if he's too offensive, what chance do the rest of us have? Uh
2: it's it's funny. It's like you know the lineups are very different. You know, I mean when Candy was booking the club, but it, it's funny how you know a lot of times these booking meetings that i'm having with ownership it's like okay this needs to be diverse you need a a, a sample of male female black uh person of color gay straight it's 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 a balancing act it it's a puzzle really piece is. yeah i'm sure it you're really like is. putting together a
1: puzzle yeah and it's i don't no, mean to be, you know my my thing is i and i don't mean i come from boston where you yeah. know uh we had a big issue up there because patrice who started as a doorman at the comedy connection and you know blossomed out of that to be the, the comedic beast that he was and i miss him dearly i love i love patrice we had lost a lot out of boston john panett was out of boston he's passed away so a lot of guys have gone but anyway patrice Uh, would never, when we had a showcase, let's say Montreal comedy festival came to look at comics in Boston. There'd be 12 of us on the showcase. You're each supposed to do seven minutes. Patrice would always blow right past that. He'd double or triple his time and do 20 minutes. And so Paul Barkley put him at the end of the showcase. And then he started saying it's racist. You know, why do you put the, the, there's only two black guys on the showcase and you put one of us at the end, the Rosa parks seat in the back of the, and we're like, Patrice, it's cause you don't, you blow through the light. Everybody else is doing seven minutes. And when you go more than seven minutes, you're fucking everyone after you. So right. if we put you on second and you do 20 minutes, then everybody after you is going to get screwed. Uh, cause they're all going to stick to their seven minutes. And he always played the race card. And we were like, Patrice, it's not. And I think he did it tongue in cheek, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was the diversity in Boston back then. You know, you were lucky to get two black guys on the same. It was all white dudes like me. So uh, I get that we want to do diversity. I think that's a positive thing. I think that my wife's a comic, and I think that she, you know, I think it's a sexist world. I never believed that until I married her. But comedy is definitely, you know, look at, there are clubs that are booked by women that won't hire women. So uh, I I love that they're doing the diversity. I don't have any issue with that. My issue is with, uh, you know, funny is funny, and why people get so offended and in a tizzy now uh, when they come to a comedy club. It's just like, why are you there then? Uh, right. I, uh, it
0: just kills me. So, so you, you you, and your wife are both comedians and yeah. your kid, you have twins, right? That's, we do. So what was it like for your kids growing up, right, with two parents who <laughs> are comedians, like what do you think they would say, you know, obviously they're older now, you mentioned they're in college. Like what what do you think they're they're saying from living in a house with you know two people never knowing like I imagine is that serious is that a joke like if I do this is that going to wind up in my dad or
1: mom's set like up <laughs> in their shoes? Um, they will be in counseling one day. We're pretty sure of that. <laughs> hasn't happened yet, but they're doomed. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, they didn't know what we did when they were really little. They thought I was a rodeo clown. They had no idea. You know, I would. I would. I was always getting the cheapest flight out, which is always the crack of dawn flight, six a.m. And uh, also because I was terrified that there would be some kind of travel nightmare, and I just wanted to get to the where I was supposed to be to earn. And so my bag would be packed the night before by the door, and when they saw the bag, they would freak out. They would sit on the bag and start screaming because they it was it would it all that meant to them was I was leaving. And same with mom when her bag was by the door and they knew she was leaving and they didn't like that. So uh, we. I think America's Got Talent. My kids were at an age where they really understood that we were what we did for a living at that point. They had never come to shows before until then and stuff. But yeah, uh, and yeah, they, I mean, they, they know that they get away with a little more maybe, uh, but they've done pretty well we have another kid besides our twins who's 14 who will be the death of me and he is uh carrie is the youngest in her family i'm the youngest in my family i've never done a formal study but most comics that i run into are the youngest because they needed attention and they lashed out and so uh he's the youngest in our family and he is going to uh he thinks he can get away with anything and uh yeah to your point he's um
2: i can't wait for this kid's tight five put him on (laughs) let's go Let's go. Saturday night, prime spot, 8.30.
0: Are they doing
1: He wants it. <laughs> is he funny? Like, does he take after you guys? Is, I think is I thinking? think he's funny, but, like, you know, I'm also in the position of a father. I have to sure. discipline him. So he'll come and tell me something that happened at school, and I have to leave the room so I can go chuckle in the bathroom, and then I have to come back with a straight face, and I literally bite a hole in my lip as I'm saying <laughs> that's inappropriate, <laughs> that was unintended, you know, and uh, and Kerry hates my – you know, laughing along when he does it, but my parents did that to me too, so, you know. Do you, so back to what Jumper up before
0: about colleges actually teaching comedy, like, do you think comedy can be taught or do do you think it's in you and, you know, you can construct how to, you know, teach someone how to write a joke, but that doesn't necessarily make them go up on stage and be able to connect with an audience and be funny, I think. Uh,
1: You're getting me in trouble, Gregory, and I'll tell you why my wife (laughs) teaches comedy. So she teaches at (laughs) Leaveny Live, so uh, the uh, the appropriate answer is, yes, I think you can learn a lot from a comedy club. But uh, I've never taken one. My good friends who are stand-ups have never taken one. Uh, you know, I took a script writing class once. Yeah, you can learn the basics of stand-up and the rule of three and, you know, know how to play to your audience. And there's all kinds of stuff you can learn. I think the, you can learn the foundation. I, I'm not, I, I don't have a problem with anyone doing that. But... You know, are funny's funny, and are you funny, and and so you can take all the classes in the world, and you can still suck, and you can be a guy who never took a class, and you can be, you know, a, a genius. You can be David Attell, for lack of a better uh, example. You know, you can be someone who's really, really funny that never took a class. So, I, I, I jury's out on that. Right. Hey, John, does anyone come to mind that you know is taking some of the comedy
0: classes around town and and stuff that?
2: I mean, it's, it's a, it's a rite of passage. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I feel like, I mean, I'm a newer generation of, you know, uh, uh, industry here that, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you when I came in, I, I mean, I've always said this, I'm an unlikely gatekeeper, uh, for the club, you know, um, I, I think in dollars and cents. Um, but to the point of, of that, it seems like you have to kind of do some sort of class or be part of some community in order to kind of get that stage time. Uh, you know, um, you know, you got the American Comedy Institute, which does some great, you know, stuff. Comedy Mob does a great bringers, uh, place, but a lot of them met each other kind of at these comedy workshops, right. uh, essentially, which I think are very good. Um, there's always that funny line that people say that, uh, a comedy uh, a comedy class is a $500 class to tell you to move the mic stand. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I think there is some, <laughs> as funny. long as they're working, if they're a working comedian, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense. And I'll be honest, we got into the game too at Stand Up New York. We did a comedy class online with Teachable uh, where it was six different comics that were working. I mean, there are some things that you're going to pick up. With the calisthenics of, you know, comedy, of like moving the mic stand, of things, you know, of, of comedy in threes, you know, rehearsing your set before a longer set, doing a long form, and writing out every single piece of it. I mean, there's these little tips on there, but there are just some of them that, like, they just, they just grasp to it. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's, it's uncanny. Like I, goes back I mean, a
1: long way. There were classes in Boston thirty years ago. Uh, the only reason I didn't take them is because I didn't I couldn't afford them. Uh, it wasn't you know I would have and especially if it was someone who I respected that was teaching the class. But uh, t- to your point about you know how you have to take them now, it's a rite of passage. I feel that way about uh, uh, festivals. I really think festivals are such an unbelievable, I don't think I've ever done a festival where I haven't gotten something out of it. You know, it's either a connection with a club or, you know, a college agent or, you know, some kind of TV thing later down the road. Some festivals, if nothing else, are great networking places. And a class is just a smaller festival, I guess. I mean, you're meeting all these people and one might know of an open mic that you might not know about. Right. And one might say, hey, uh, you know, this guy needs a, a, someone to drive him and open for him, uh, whatever it is. know it's anything that leads to stage time leads to successful stand-up comedy so
2: i completely agree with you on that one i've i've never i mean i i i I have this polarizing view about open mics as of late that i've been kind of very open about and i want to see what your thoughts are tom you talk about like needing stage time and always getting to stage time i personally think that open mics an extent, should over time be utilized not as running sets, five-minute sets, but Jason Salmon did this, and I thought this was cl- very clever. He would come down to do the mic at five o'clock. He's a pro. He is in TVs, he's in movies, and he goes up there and goes, hey guys, I'm going to do a joke. I'm going to tell give you the setup first, and then I'm going to redo the joke with a second punchline, and you're going to tell me which one is better. So there's this idea that sometimes I don't think that Mics are actually beneficial if all you're doing is using utilizing them for repetition. Um, I think that you have to be on the fly sometimes, and you have to live in the moment on stage. Um, and maybe maybe I'm just a little kind of jaded, just because I deal with more you know pro comics than I deal with uh, younger talents. But what do you? Th- Think about the scene now, Tom. I mean, there are those comics that, I mean, I'll see the do open mics and I'll go around to open mics. I will go to them. Uh, and the only reason I'll go to them is because I know 90% of them are going to just be doing their tightest five over and over and over to the same exact, to comedians. It, it's I don't think that makes any sense sometimes after a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends if there's industry in the room, you know, if someone's you're always hoping that there's going to be someone there, a talent scout of some sort uh, for a network or, you know, a TV show or anything, uh, you know, you want to put on your best face. And if that's your type five to seven, then that's what you want. Yeah, pilot seasons in Boston. I mean, in L.A. used to be filled with actors who just had seven minutes of stand-up because it was the only way to get in front of industry. So they really, really worked on that seven minutes. They had nothing more. If you asked them to do eight minutes, they'd start to go in the tank quickly, but they worked on that seven minutes. But I like the, the, the scenario you just painted where the guy, you know, presents the setup and says, I have these two variations for, cause now you're practicing in front of a live audience and other comics and they can tell you, yes, that's a better, uh, you know, punchline B yeah. is better than punchline A, and that way you're working it out. But you always have to have your best five to seven, so I can't right. just people from doing that. I just John, feel like
0: Mike's... show, John, what's, that's a good idea for that? a show. You bring a bunch of people in. You'd be like, all right, you got five minutes, and then right before showtime, you'd be like, all right, we're changing it up. You got eight minutes.
2: <laughs> well, I would. I, I'm not playing with money that way. I'd like a Christmas bonus this year. <laughs> I don't
0: know. I have
2: one room, 120 seats, um, and a 4.3 rating on Google reviews right now. That
0: I want to be out of five. I don't know. I think that would be fun. I'm you know what
2: it is, though, Tom and, and, and Greg. I just I feel that mics in the city don't have audiences. I think mics in New York City are just comedians. So maybe yes like Vinnie brand down at uh stress uh has a Wednesday or a Tuesday mic Wednesday. down over New Brunswick is a Wednesday yeah, and that people come to you know what I mean it's it's not just a mic it's a live show but a five o'clock on a Monday sometimes I I, I just I, like you they're like literally people are on their phones they're not paying attention like what what's what are you getting out of it you know it comes to the 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 point that, you know, do, like, to if if I said, hey, Tom, there's a bar show in Brooklyn in Bushwick on Sunday night. There's going to be 10 people there. Can you do seven minutes? Like, you would get nothing out of it. Um, And maybe I'm looking at that perspective because I I just, but I I just, I don't know. It's been on my head that I think the the whole idea of an open mic needs to be challenged, Um, especially if it's being run by a club.
1: Well, I don't like the concept of the 5 p.m. one. I never understood that. I don't like the earlier ones. I guess they're trying to get that in before the real show because the real show you can monetize. I get that. But when I started in Boston, you know, it it was uh, Stitches had comedy every night of the week and Tuesday was their open mic night. And that was specifically just their one show on a Tuesday night was open mic and everyone knew it. And Mm -hmm. uh, other clubs did the same thing, but it wasn't, you know, five in the afternoon. Yeah. How are you going to get people to that? That's more like a bringer show, it sounds like. You're going to harass people to go it's to fun. that.
2: It's like It's like, if I if I look at the city right now, and I look at every single club, you know, every single show that is, you know, like every open mic is before doors. I mean, I don't even have one. I actually have Comedy Mob runs this runs Monday, and that's an open mic, but people come into that. So, yes, I anticipate you give me your type five debt. There's paying customers in the room. Um, but, like, I see these mics sometimes on a Tuesday at 11 p.m. to a bar of nobody that's just comedians. It's like, don't, like, don't waste your time. Like, you should be home and writing or hanging out at a club and hoping to God that somebody cancels, you know what I mean? It's
0: the stage time thing. Like you know, the Yeah, home... they're
1: not mutually exclusive. You, right. you still should be home writing, but at the same time, you do need to get on stage sometime mm-hmm. and do it in front of a live audience just you know, to hear yourself say it and to get some kind of feedback from people. Because how many times have uh, you written something you thought was genius, and then you do it on stage and it dies a horrible death. And then something you've written that you're like, ah, it's okay, it's mediocre, and that becomes you know a great bit later on. And the only way you know that is from in front of a live audience, I think.
0: How do you how do you cultivate new material on stage? Because I mean, obviously you're not going to open mics, but how do you do it? Do you use it a little bit in 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 sets, like you just try some things out or takes his wife's
2: class, duh. Yeah. (laughs) He's at levity and he's like, he's like, hey, Carrie, can I just, it's a new hour I'm working on.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, you're always, you always have, when I was a kid, it's these things. We always, you have a million of these stupid things with notes on them. And then uh, the cell phone has taken over that. Now you dictate into your cell phone and, You know, you you excuse yourself. You're out to dinner with friends and you're like, oh, that's a funny concept. And you get up from the table and you walk away and everyone gets self-conscious. But that's because you know (laughs) you're going to forget it if you don't put it in the phone. And then you mine that for, if it's a one-liner that has a tagline, then it's got two taglines. Then it's now it's a bit. And then you got other lines. So that's kind of, that's my process. Uh, I know some people write on stage. My wife likes to write on stage. She'll just throw out stuff and see where it goes. And she, that's why she records her set sometimes because sometimes out of that organic, I'm yeah. uh, just throwing shit against the wall. Let's see what sticks. You can really get something great.
0: How long have you been a Pats fan?
1: Long, long time. Uh, we had season tickets when they were the doormat of the entire NFL. So I would go to that stadium, and it was the worst stadium in the league, and I would sit on aluminum benches, freezing my ass off, watching my team get its ass handed to it, and then go sit in a car with my dad who chain-smoked and didn't put the windows down. And uh, it was the worst traffic in the world, so I paid my goddamn dues. So I'm allowed to be excited about the team now.
0: But Not not since Hartford, though. Only since Foxborough-Sullivan Stadium.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, actually, they played in Boston before. They were the Boston Patriots. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, then when it was uh, Shea Stadium and Sullivan Stadium, but now Gillette, it's the yeah. Blade. It's much yeah. better. But yeah. it was a dog shit stadium. Oh, I know. I, I've been many the times. The worst parking, the worst traffic in the world on Route 1. It wasn't even a highway. It wasn't even near a highway. So it was just uh, exercise in futility every I, week. That...
0: I'll tell you a funny story that I tell everybody about me going to Sullivan Stadium. I, I believe it was 89 <clears throat> for the Rolling Stones concert. When they came. Nice. If you're going to go, Oh, that's why. I, I was in a, my car at the time, which was a 1988 Monte Carlo SS with T-tops. Quit bragging. Like right. it. And, you know, you're, back, you're in that traffic and there's two lanes, up and two lanes back. Yeah. The traffic, the car next to me leans over, guy leans out of the car and goes, excuse me, sir, would you have any gray Poupon? <laughs> right? I fucking had gray Poupon in my glove. In the car. <laughs> right? I opened it up lunge for the global moment jump out give it to this guy he looked at me like he i was literally an alien he starts jumping up and down in the middle of that road with a can of mustard jar of mustard right that guy is telling that story right now to someone someplace (laughs)
1: that's
0: that's my best story about
1: sullivan stadium that is a quality story at least you guys Uh, had something to do when you're sitting in that traffic Uh, it was the worst. And the other thing, if you remember, they had the uh, horse trough urinals. They had just yeah. giant, it wasn't one urinal. It was one long thing. Yep. and every, But there were lines to get up to it. And I had nervous kisney, kidneys as a kid. And so my dad would buy me the jumbo soda the bladder buster and then i would have to piss by the second quarter and i could never piss because there's some meathead behind me with a boston accent going are you gonna just stand there or are you gonna piss and so you know i probably have bladder damage to this day for holding <laughs> so the whole thing was the worst experience in the world because they suck so bad back in the 70s and 80s So, but, uh, who, you know, who's I your know,
0: quarterback you know. of choice uh, not including brady of course but back from the 70s 80s
1: grogan grogan was a decent Brogan. quarterback he had no one around him That's right. That's the thing, you know. He had one Hall of Fame Hog. Hanna was his only offensive lineman. The rest of them sucked so hard. And Russ Francis was a great um, tight end for us. But other than that, we were we were the shit of the league. We were constantly in last place, and we were just abused.
0: Except that one Super Bowl year,
1: '86, <laughs> we went. We got our asses kicked by the Bears. Bears. Yeah, remember it was Barry the Bears, and they humiliated us. One of their offensive linemen scored a rushing touchdown on us, named the Refrigerator William the Refrigerator. Barry. Yeah, Barry. Absolutely. He, he was at
2: WrestleMania.
1: Yeah, and then uh then we got our asses kicked the next time, and then when Brady and Belichick got together, we were good. And so,
0: what is it like living out where you live in, outside the New York City suburb in the New York City suburbs, being a Patriots fan? Because I I live in Southern Connecticut,
1: technically New England, but I grew up a giants fan yankees fan like i think we all see the hat greg okay we see what's going on there uh okay yeah i'm a bruins red sox celtics patriots guy i've born and raised that way and so when i moved down here i knew i was going to take a beating but carrie and i she also is from just south of boston so she's also devoutly bruins red sox celtics and patriots and our kids to this day have remained true to that. Now, they got bullied a lot when the Giants beat us in the Super Bowl twice. They got their asses handed to them in school, but it builds character. And now those two boys, the twins, are at University of Rhode Island, where everyone, again, is a Patriots fan. So uh, it's all right. They're spoiled. My dad waited 82 years to see his first World Series victory for his beloved Red Sox. My kids saw like three of them before they were ten years old. So,
0: <laughs> and all the Patriots bowls. I mean, they they don't they don't know what it's like to to root for a team that is in the gutter.
1: Yeah, they you never know. dealt with a horse trough urinal when they no, had they have. issues. No, they have.
0: And even this year, when you think the Patriots are going down, it's a miraculous first play. Tonight's a big night.
1: We'll probably lose to the Bills tonight. <laughs> the Bills, you know, I'm hoping we win, but I'm already, I am I, wouldn't place a bet on this game.
0: So. <laughs> that That's good old Boston pride. Yeah. Uh, anyway, John, you want to bring it home with our usual food sure. conversation?
2: Absolutely. So, Tom, you know, uh, with all the touring that, uh, you know, you do, um, you know, we talked a lot about comedy. But the one thing that we always do is we always talk about things that we eat. You're on the road a lot. There's different places that you like. But we wanted to kind of narrow it down. So what we want to ask and close our shows with is what was the best thing you had to eat this week? This week? This week. You had a whole weekend. Yeah. I
1: I was on Nantucket and uh, I was out there for four days and there's not a lot of poverty in Nantucket and so nope nope uh, nope
2: nope. cookies and chips are friggin' delicious over there uh
1: so you know we we were the thing we did was sponsored by you know rich people who like to support the arts so they took us out to really nice meals every night and I gained a lot of weight this last week but yeah um we ate at a place called the summer house and we ate at another place called um I can't remember the name and place, but ridiculously good food, which is rare, because usually when I'm on the road, I'm a cheap prick, so I don't want to <laughs> spend a lot of money, uh, and that leads to shitty fast food. Uh, but then you, you know, you you find the fast food that you don't feel guilty eating. I'm a huge Chipotle guy now.
2: See, that's not bad. That's yeah. not bad at all. Yeah, you I you love feel Chipotle. a little bit better.
1: And there are others that you know. I that there's you know, kadoba is a knockoff of uh, of Chipotle, and so is Moe's Caribbean, I think. But um, yeah, I try, try not to eat complete dog shit like I did when I was younger, because when I was younger, I could burn it off. Now it stays. With me. What
0: happens when you're on cruises though? Right, like you're going on a a, a comedy cruise this week. So how ha- how do you do that on, on a cruise ship?
1: How'd you know I was going on a comedy cruise? Did I tell you that?
0: No, I your your tour dates.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's always death because it's a buffet; it's all you can eat. Sure. And I'm on Princess, and they have 24-hour pizza, which should never be available to the public 24 hours. And if you've seen is the people good? on cruise ships, you know that it shouldn't be allowed, but it is. But um, is it good pizza, though? Like, it, you know what? It's uh, I've had a lot worse. It's yeah. not the worst pizza in the world. Not it's Christ not the best. Not bad. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, you know, you just try to moderate. Uh, I. I if I had no discipline at all, I would be a house right now because I eat a lot. (laughs) When you're on the road, what else are you going to do? You know? No, I get it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I I mean, I've uh, experienced it. I mean, I'm not a touring comic, but like you get into town and I would go to these, you know, like I get called out to a festival or something to like watch. And all you do is like, I check, Yelp, and I'm like, what's the best places to eat? And then the second tab is a porn tab, and you just eat, and drink <laughs> off, and fucking go to shows. It's I don't all know you what else you
1: need? <laughs> you don't need anything. It's a quality <laughs> life right there.
0: Yeah, I mean, Tom, I-
1: thanks so much, Red. Oh, Thank sorry, you Greg. guys. This was a lot of fun. I do a lot of these, and this one was fun. Yeah, good, sure. good.
0: Hopefully we'll see you in town one of
1: these days. To do yeah, Tom. Love to see some avails. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all right. I, yeah, I'm just woefully disorganized. Moderately humorous, yeah, that's woefully disorganized. But I will and, get you guys And time. the
2: month looks great. So whenever you're ready, you and Carrie, we'd love to have you down there.
1: Honored. Thank you so much, John. appreciate it. Greg, all thank right. you. You too, Tom. Thanks a lot, man. Farewell, Later. guys.